A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk, the podcast about all things materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski. In this episode, I spoke to Eleanor Schofield about wood. Eleanor is the Head of Conservation and Collections Care at the Mary Rose Trust in Portsmouth and I got the train down to meet her and have a little private tour of the Mary Rose Museum after hours. We then sat in the semi-darkness opposite the ship itself to record this conversation. I started by asking Eleanor what her job of looking after a 500-year-old wooden ship actually entails. Broadly speaking, my job is to look after the collection. So um, the Mary Rose was a ship of Henry VIII's, which sank in 1545 after sailing for 34 years. It did not sink on its maiden voyage. Um, And she was raised in 1982 alongside over 19,000 artefacts. And there is a huge collection um, ranging in material size, what they were used for, very personal possessions, weapons, everyday living items. Um, And what my job is, is to ensure the safety of them, basically. So this can be in the hands-on conservation and stabilisation of them. Um, It can be looking after the associated archives. So with each artefact, there are excavation records, there are um, dive logs, there are artefact cards that kind of capture the initial information that the diver saw about it. Um, conservation records, con- uh, condition reports, photographs, you get the idea. There's Whoa. lots lots and lots and lots. Um, we're yeah. actually at the moment doing a project to digitise all of that. So you, we, we would have a system where you just put in a number and you get everything. So, um, so yeah, the conservation, the collections, uh, also the maintenance um, is under my remit because everywhere in the museum where you see an artifact, there is a, a controlled environment. So there's a controlled temperature and humidity and it takes an awful lot of kit um, and maintenance of that kit to keep that going. Um, so that's my kind of in-house job. Um, and then I also work with universities um, and uh, other research institutes and develop research projects to um, also to look after the collection. It could be developing a new treatment. It could be using a new technique to understand the materials um, or different monitoring methods, things like that. And so that can take me into all 
different fields of physical sciences and engineering and beyond sometimes. <laughs> awesome. So how did you come to work here then? What's your background? So my background is in material science. I had a bit of a roundabout journey into museums. Um, I did not expect to be working in a museum now. Uh, I did uh, material science at Imperial College and then did my PhD there. I was actually working on making um, nanoporous metallic sponges, which I'm laughing now because that's so removed from what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> but basically during that we um we used x-ray techniques so i went to a synchrotron a lot um to use a synchrotron to monitor how these uh, sponges were formed and to look at the pore size and to look at strains that were formed and things like that so um i fell in love with using synchrotrons um said no one ever (laughs) as you do (laughs) um and so I actually was lucky because I went out to um SSRL which is at Stanford a synchrotron there so it's in California a lot of my um other people that had done their degree at the same time would use the UK synchrotron (laughs) which at the time was in Runcon (laughs) so yeah they got to get a train train up there and I got to fly over to San Francisco so I was very very fortunate (laughs) and I just fell in love with all of it as you do Mm -hmm. see more people would say that I'm sure um but then an opportunity came up after the PhD to do a postdoc there. Um, this was actually an environmental science. Um, it was looking at characterizing uranium in wastewater where it's been kind of dumped in the ground and bioremediation methods. So um, very different again, but it was using a synchrotron and it was using slightly different x-ray techniques. So I was kind of adding another um, synchrotron technique to my repertoire. Nice. <laughs> um, and then as that was coming to an end um a friend of mine pointed me in the direction of a postdoc that was coming up at the university of kent in canterbury and you needed to be a material scientist uh you needed to be able to use a synchrotron and it was working with the mary rose basically and it was looking at acids that can form in the mary rose because of things that get into it in the seawater so this is predominantly looking at sulfur from seawater and iron which is in seawater but is also heavily in the wood because of corroded artifacts and fixtures so the way um, you monitor that is using x-rays to look at the different sulfur oxidation states um so i then had a postdoc there um and then i actually took a slight sidestep out of research for a while i went and worked at uh, elsevier as a publisher um and it was perfectly fine but not for me let's say Mm -hmm. and there was a point where i thought oh (laughs) i think i've made a mistake um and fortunately for me the job then came up as conservation manager here um in 2012 which i went for and and got and i've been working here ever since so and then three years ago i became the head of department here so so that's my roundabout route into museum life (laughs) amazing i love it and we should say we are sitting currently Directly opposite the actual Mary Rose in the museum yes. after hours. Yes, so. we have the museum to ourselves. It's yeah. very nice. I don't often sit in here at this time as well, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> but it is quite nice. You can kind of get a, a nice feel for it being on your own here. It's, good. it's very cool. I think it's probably the most grand setting of a real talk we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's very cool. So um, let's hear a little bit about the the story of the Mary Rose, how okay. it ended up in the Real Talk studio, <laughs> the new Real Talk studio. Okay, so um, so the Mary Rose was basically going out to confront an invading f- French fleet. She'd sailed for 34 years. Um, she'd had various renovations done to get more equipment on there, more weapons. Um, some of the cannons that you can see here, obviously, are massive and very, very heavy. 
Um, so the waterline actually wasn't so far off from where the gunport lids are. And the, the kind of most accepted theory is what happened was they'd fired on uh, fired the cannons on one side and then they turned very quickly in bad weather, didn't shut the gunport lids for whatever reason, and lots of water came on and it sank very rapidly. Okay. Um, and the accounts are that it did happen very rapidly. Um, Henry VIII was there at South Sea Castle, watched it happen. Um, and actually it was a huge, huge tragedy. So um, nearly 500 people went down with the ship. Um, and lost their lives. So there were some initial attempts to excavate the ship, um, predominantly to get some of the expensive cannons off there with very limited success. Uh, And then what happened was the ship went down onto its starboard side. Um, All the artifacts fell into the ship. Um, all, the, all the items, I should say, they weren't really, they weren't artifacts then. <laughs> all the, all the, all the things with the ship um, went down into the starboard side, and slowly over time, the ship was covered in silt. And what this did was basically seal it in time, because once enough silt was there, oxygen couldn't get to the site, so corrosion couldn't happen. Um, a lot of the degradation mechanisms for the wood and other artifacts couldn't happen. So it just kind of protected it then. But it also meant that it wasn't visible, right? You mm-hmm. couldn't see it because it was covered. Yeah. Um, so then in the 1800s, the Dean brothers who kind of invented diving gear, they, they found the site, they went down there. Um, and because it wasn't protected, you know, this was years before any of these things um, came to be, they just took stuff from it and flogged it basically because that was fair game. They even actually set off explosions at parts to get further into the ship no to way. try and get to the get to the goods basically. Wow. Um and then it was left the site was left again for, for years and years um until a local um historian and diver, Alexander McKee, um he with a, a group of volunteers set out to try and find the Mary Rose. Um and actually, they, they found her by using what was at the time state-of-the-art sonar and acoustic techniques because they, they found an anomaly under the seabed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some in- initial excavations were done um, and eventually they confirmed that it was the Mary Rose. Actually, maps from the time do, do map over with now quite well. So it, well, it was quite documented where it was. It was just that it was buried that you couldn't see yeah. it. Um, so then... The Mary Rose Trust wasn't formed until 1979, but and that's and I believe that's when it became a protected wreck site. So now you you can't go and dive there; it's illegal to go there or go near the site. Um, and then, but before that, thousands and thousands of dives, all by volunteers excavating thousands of artifacts. Wow. Volunteering is such an important theme throughout all of our history, even to this date, because we're a charity. We get no government funding, so we're totally reliant on ticket sales and donations and also people giving their time um and all these all these divers came from quite far afield sometimes spent their time diving um and now we have volunteers who work front of house and actually who work on the digitization project as well so it's it's always been very important to us and we're really lucky that so many people will freely give their time to to the cause to try and (laughs) um look after uh, the mary rose so the ship was eventually excavated in 1982, mm-hmm. um, or the half of the ship that we have. Um, any decking planks and things like that, things that could were, either were loose or could come loose, were taken off. Um, the ship was put onto a cradle and, and raised up. Some people will remember that image of seeing the ship breaking the waters um, of the Solon on a yellow cradle, which she is still on to this day. Um, and then she was brought into this dry dock three in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. And she's never moved from here. It's just we've changed the configuration <laughs> around her. <laughs> so the ship was initially sprayed with cold water. 
Uh, this was to keep it wet and also to stop any bacterial activity. Um, and then we treated her with a consolidant with polyethylene glycol or PEG, as we call it. What this does is um, essentially the wood, whilst it looks in very good condition, it is a bit degraded. Um, and when it's first excavated, it's the water that's keeping it swelled out and looking as good as it does. Mm, okay. And if you just let that dry, it would just shrink and crack. So you have to replace some of that water. And that's what we do. We replace it with PEG. Um, and so the ship was sprayed with PEG. Um, two different grades of PEG, a, a lower grade molecular weight, which goes very deep into the wood, and then another grade which kind of seals the surface. Um, and then the ship was air dried from 2013. So she's pretty much dry now. That's why we have the configuration now in the museum where you have um, a balcony where you can be in the same enclosure. But when you are in that enclosure, you are in a controlled temperature and humidity and she'll remain in that forever. It's very important to stop or slow down any degradation. So this must have been quite an experimental thing to do. I would imagine there aren't that many Tudor ships that have been raised from the seabed. No, I believe this is the only Tudor ship, I believe. <laughs> um, but there, are, there, are, there aren't many, but there are other ships as well. So there okay. is a kind of like unique little gang of people looking after wet old wood, basically. Right. Um, there's the Vassa in Stockholm. Um, this is a ship which is 100 years younger than Mary Rose, but was excavated about 15 years before the Mary Rose. So we work really closely with them and they actually used a peg treatment and air drying. So we kind of looked at what they'd done, learned from what they, they'd done, things like that. Um, so there, there, there are enough people to kind of draw on their experiences. But um, I mean, one thing is that they are always different though. You know, it's, it's different wood. I mean, usually it's oak, but it's wood from a different place. It's mm. been lost at a different time. It's in different water. It's in different sediments. So yeah. all these things just add these things, little quirks that make it slightly different but kind of broadly speaking you can kind of draw on each other's expertise there's like a little gang of us and now because we've all treated the ships in similar ways a lot of it is is monitoring it looking at how these things develop in the wood looking at how the the, the wood and the structure moves and things like that so we all actually try and support each other as as much as we can that's awesome so it's kind of experimental but also like sharing knowledge and yeah building on what other people definitely that's been crucial for us and we I mean we try to do our bit as well for other people so we'll often get asked you know what what treatments we've done what worked what didn't and we would you know share that information with people Awesome. So the material that we're talking about on this podcast is the, I guess, the material that the ship is mostly made out of, which yes. is wood. Yes. <laughs> we're looking at a lot of wood right now. Yeah. Um, firstly, let's define what makes Mary Rose wood, Mary Rose wood. Yeah. So I, I have a th I've had a thing more recently where we, we talk about it being wood and it, it was initially, but now it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a little bit different because it's, it's degraded wood and it's also got peg in it now, mm. which changes how it behaves and changes the material properties. It also has all kinds of other stuff, let's say from the seawater. I mean, all of our, all of our collection basically has been marinating in seawater for <laughs> hundreds of years. So you know, it's not unusual for us to do some analysis, some ele elemental analysis and be like, well, where is that from? And, and it could be from the seawater. It could be from an artifact that was on the deck that corroded. So there is a whole load of stuff in there which can change how it behaves, basically, mm. or could um, degrade the wood over time. Um, so this kind of at the moment, mostly what I'm looking at it is the, the kind of mechanical differences of it and the chemical differences. So... Um, when you treat wood with peg you put enough in there that you give it some structural stability but not so much that it's going to look like a piece of plastic okay so we definitely go down 
the minimal interventions interventions so we're we're conservation we're not restoration we're not replacing anything right. on the ship we're not going to put some new oak on there that's not what we're about we're trying to just um preserve what we have so so because you're not absolutely hammering it with peg it there is going to be some shrinkage. There are going to be some cracks. And also because we only have half a ship, as you can see, mm. these deck beams, they would have been attached to the other half of the ship. And sure. they're not. So they can move. And some of the higher beams that you see, um, they obviously can move because they're not secured in place as they would have been. Um, you also have the issue with, with ships like this. We have this issue less because we don't have all of the ship, is that they were never designed to be out of the water for this long. Yeah. So then they're carrying their own weight, which they are not designed to do. Right, yeah. So when you've got a whole ship, that is a lot of weight pushing down on it. So we that, that is a, it's something for us to be mindful of, but we don't have it as much as, as other places. So we're in, that, we're, in that sense, we're kind of lucky that we don't have the whole ship. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, when you add peg to the wood, you can you can change the properties in terms of the kind of more plastic behavior of it and creep and things or things like that will mm. come into it. Um, and then the kind of chemical side is all the all the stuff from the sea that's got into it, the the sulfur from the seawater, iron from corroded artifacts and fixtures. They can form acids over time, which can degrade the wood. Um, the peg can actually also, if it's still in a liquid form, it can carry the iron ions around the wood. Okay. Um, you can also get, it's likely over time that the peg itself will break down because materials do right it's yeah. not going to stay like that forever so that's something that we've we've had kind of worked with vasa on that they they are starting to see that there is some breakdown so we've sent samples and we're kind of then trying to benchmark it against that and think right well um, what would we do um so yeah and obviously as a as techniques like scientific techniques and ways to look at materials continually improve mm. you're always learning more about the collection whether it's my perspective is from the conservation so it's understanding how the materials are behaving but then they can also be used for how we understand them the artifacts and the story that they're telling so um it's kind of the the two sides of it flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
So what would be your typical approach then to conserving a piece of the Merry Rose from when it first comes up from the seabed? Okay, so um, with the with the wood, it's the, the ship was treated differently to smaller artifacts. So in an ideal world, what you do is you put the artifacts in a tank and you fill it with water and then you incrementally add peg to it. So you do it in a kind of slow process, incrementing the percentage of peg to the water because you don't want to create a kind of big viscosity difference between the water and the peg because then it could actually just destroy the wood trying to get into the wood cells. Mm -hmm. So, you know, typically artifacts could be in a tank for a year or two. And then to get rid of the extra moisture, you would put it in a freeze dryer. So you you freeze it, so the water turns to ice, and then you apply a pressure so it sublimates out. And then you have a condenser which you're collecting ice in, and once there's no more ice being formed, then you've dried it. And the beauty of this is it makes it much quicker, so it'll take kind of a few months for... Uh, the item to dry, which means that you don't get as much um, shrinkage and dimensional changes. So that's the ideal world. Now, we're sat here looking at the ship and obviously you can see that building a tank around that was not really feasible. Yeah, it's massive. It is massive. So um, there is a... um, the Bremen Cog in Bremerhaven in Germany, they did actually build, it's smaller, but it's still significant length. They built a tank around it. But going back again to all the junk that's in the wood, you know, yeah. it gets very, very murky very quickly. So, um, and again, going back to us being a charity, it's always been critical for us to be open as much as we can and get people coming in, mm. paying their tickets and coming to see us. Because if that doesn't happen, we couldn't keep on doing the conservation. So, mm. um, so, the other op- so the two options would have been... Uh, in terms of you know down, going down the tank route would have been building a tank around it or um, dismantling it mm. and putting a tank and then building it again which again you can looking at it you can imagine the pain of doing yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> um so we had a this peg spray system around it um and then in terms of drying it obviously it wouldn't fit in our our freeze dryer our biggest freeze dryer which is huge it's like six meters long but you know this is 34 meters long so that ain't happening (laughs) um so we devised an air drying system around it basically there was a laser scan taken of the ship and they did um modeling of airflow around it with various different tubes and there was an interim stage when this museum opened where um there were there were tubes around it and the floor to ceiling glazing that you see now on the balcony they weren't here it was kind of these smaller windows looking in Mm. and this was all around about controlling the environment when we were so when we were first drying it was really critical that the environment was stable in terms of yeah temperature rh but also the velocity of the air and the direction of it and how it was hitting it and the impact of the air on the ship because if you had one part drying faster than the other you would encourage kind of warping and things like that and once it's happened you can't really go back from that the wood is going to go where it wants to go so that's so complicated yeah so that so i started working here a year before we turned the sprays off and i was in here a lot working on the ship and actually if you if you lean forward a bit you can see that we are we're kind of set back a bit from the ship that's because we have transporters there and we have cranes so Mm. shortly after i started working here i got my crane driving license which yeah it's something i never thought i'd have my cv (laughs) lots of fun but also slightly terrifying when you're driving a crane next to this you know you unique piece of cultural heritage (laughs) that's like terrifying and also i should say during that time in the ship hall it was about 30 degrees about 98 percent humidity and you know you you it wasn't very good visibility either so it it was quite challenging so (laughs) we were working in here kind of preparing the ship for drying we were we actually washed down the entire ship 
with um, with hoses, which you can imagine the practicalities of trying to get all around this. Yeah. Um, and then we put in various markers and things like that and installed a lot of the framework for these drying ducts so that when we stopped spraying, we could get it all up and running quite quickly. So, yeah, it was pretty hard going, I have to say. It was quite intense physical labor being in here um and also during that time the museum was being constructed around it so it's effectively a building site so the the temporary building that had gone over the mayrose back in the early 80s that kind of got stripped back to the to the bare necessity around the ship so Mm. we could carry on doing the conservation as they built this museum around it so it was fairly challenging lots of conflicting things yeah (laughs) a definite logistical challenge yeah and we'd we'd actually got used to there was a a few years um where the ship hall was cut off to visitors and that's when I started working here we got very used to just working in there and not having people watching us and then (laughs) and then there came this moment and we were all so excited about it and we were in the ship hall me and my team and we turned the sprays off and there was a big thing about that and then we were watching them cut the window and having this realization of like this is so exciting and then thinking oh no now (laughs) everybody can see what we're doing all the time there's little faces in the windows watching yeah. you drive your crane. We actually have projections onto the ship during visitor hours. So it's, it's darker in there. So we don't tend to work on the ship then. But earlier mm. in the morning, we'll we'll get in there. Not not as often now. It doesn't need as much. But we'll kind of try and do it out of hours um, where we can. So when they were designing this new museum then, what did they have to take into account in terms of preserving the wood and allowing guests to enjoy it? I mean, right at the centre of all of that, the most important thing has always been looking after the ship. That's had to be our main priority and all of the other collections. So like I say, every everywhere that you look in here where there is an artefact, that, that has controlled temperature and humidity. So, And it's quite tightly controlled. It's like 18 to 20 degrees C and 50 to 58% hum- relative humidity. So it's, pr- it's a pretty narrow range. So in designing the museum, we they had to make it so that Obviously, from a visitor point of view, there's nothing obstructive. It's, you know, the best views. We're showcasing um, the artifacts and telling the story in the best way possible. Um, But we did obviously have to then consider how we were going to look after everything. So um, that's why we had these different phases where we started the drying and you you could only see the ship through windows and there were ducts kind of obstructing it. And it was only when we were happy that it was sufficiently dry that we kind of pulled it back to this configuration. Um, and on the balcony where you go in now, there are airlocks at either side. So it kind of tempers the, the air conditions when you come into the museum. And also when you when you first come into the museum, there, there is a gallery as well where it's not a full airlock, but it does kind of buffer a bit people, people coming in, even if it's just to slow people down and kind of cha- change the air a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's like a you know maximum number of people that can be in the museum and stuff like that. But the layout actually means it, it it flows pretty well, so we don't tend to have to worry about that. When you come to the museum, you're kind of taken on a journey mm. around it, so it's easy to kind of keep people flowing through. Um, and also the the light the light levels are kept quite low. It's really for two reasons: it's for the conservation. You don't want bright light blasting on it, but also because we're trying to make you feel like you're on the ship when you're in the museum. So cool. And it would have been fairly dark on there, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and you said earlier that there was like 500 people on the ship. Yeah. 
it's yeah. not that like it's big but it's not that big <laughs> no so there would have been two a bow castle and a stone castle so there would have been more than you see here but mm. yeah i have to say i mean we we go on the ship every so often and i you get kind of focused on what you're doing and also your health and safety because it's quite challenging on there um but then you definitely have moments of thinking oh my god imagine being on here with 500 other people yeah. i think it would have stank on there <laughs> well definitely um and the the each of the decks are quite low like can you can a can you stand up in those or yeah so it? on the main deck which we're opposite here if it's in between in one of the sections mm. i i can stand up there so i'm five seven and i can i can stand up there but it, as i'm walking along i have to duck quite a lot so yeah, yeah. it was it, you know if you were taller than five seven you were not happy you would have had a bad back on there basically <laughs> <laughs> your back would not be pleased with you <laughs> amazing so it's obviously very important for like scientific interest yes. to look at all these materials in a really scientific way. But is, does it have a greater importance to preserve these kinds of artifacts for us, do you think? I think so, definitely. I mean, ev the first thing I would say is people's reactions when they come to the museum and see um, see this collection. I mean, this it is totally unique. And also one of the things I'd say with our collection is that it's it's got everyday objects on it mm. so often you'll have museums and it's the crowns and the jewels and and they're great too i'm not saying they're not but usually the things that you know the average person or the poorer people would have have are not kept and all of this has been captured here all the range and social classes on board is all there um and there's certainly things within the collection that have have changed our understanding of history so there is a compass that we have that until one was found on the mary rose they historians didn't think it had been invented till much later oh, really? so yeah so it pin, uh, pinpoints dates like that that's cool i think um they thought it was around the 17th century and oh, actually right. it wasn't because it must have been in the 16th century so there is just so much like that um that we can learn about it and and also, like I said, my side is understanding the materials to conserve them. But there's also understanding the materials to tell the story of the people on board. Um, a colleague of mine, Alex Hildred, she's been leading research, looking into identifying the crew, looking at isotope analysis, DNA analysis. And they found such interesting things about where people were from. Um, and that's really just, they've kind of just touch the tip of the iceberg with that of, of how much we could learn about the people um as we said before it was a huge tragedy and th this this museum is dedicated to the people on board and if we can use scientific techniques to to tell the story of the people that would be great um and we've started doing that recently we just just this week had a temporary exhibition open which is on that research telling the story of eight of the people on board so you look at where they grew up where they were from where some of their parents were from um and it's super exciting and it's really exciting to think of everything that we could do in the future as techniques develop and um yeah yeah totally so what were the surprising things that they found out with all of these um like the dna testing and stuff well, I think some people, not everyone, but some people have a perception that, you know, Tudor England would have been very white, English, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas actually there were certain indicators in our collection, some of the possessions that people had um, that made some of our curators think perhaps that was not the case. Um, and also some of the skulls that have been analysed, um, some of the osteologists had thought perhaps the, the structure indicated that they were from a bit further afield. Um, and sure enough, they are. There's, there's, there's people that have come from, um, from different places in Europe and even as far away as North Africa. So 
yeah, it's really shed an interesting light on on who was on board. And like I say, we've we've only looked um, at eight people so far. So hopefully there will be lots more on that to come. Is there plan? Are there plans to look at more? Yeah, I believe they've just got a grant recently to start doing some more of the DNA analysis. So um, yeah, it's a super exciting project. Awesome. So it can shine a light not only on this one particular event the sinking of a ship Mm. but also really on the society of the Tudors in general yeah and I mean what what could be more relevant in the moment than talking (laughs) about immigration and things like that you know (laughs) yeah definitely yeah what mysteries remain for the Mary Rose then who knows (laughs) I think there's honestly who knows there's just so much I mean I I mean recently this this new exhibition obviously so much of that is new and so exciting um from my perspective in the conservation th- there can often be just little bits that will you do some analysis and find an element within the wood and think why is that there do you know <laughs> and just have to kind of um kind of go back through you know looking what's in seawater and what's in the um what were in the artifacts that were found in that specific bay in the ship and try and figure out maybe where it came from um, and like I said, the, as, as techniques develop, the, the things that we find and how we can then understand it and, and the materials that we can develop, you know, the conservation treatments. We we treated the ship with PEG and we do still treat things with PEG now, but um, hopefully in the future there would be something even better um, that we could use. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> Very exciting. What's your favourite artefact in the Mary Rose then? So I really like the things that... Um, haven't really changed to the equivalents of today so we have these beautiful wooden combs and they look like knit combs they pretty much look like what you would have now they might not be made out of wood and I love the fact that they worked 500 years ago and they work now yeah and there's also like this lovely wooden spoon as well and wooden bowls and they just they look so new they Mm. look like you could go and buy them now um and they kind of blow my mind really that that they're that old and they survived and that somebody once used them it makes it very personal and very real that you know this is the story of these people on board this ship yeah definitely I think one of the things that struck me when we were walking around is all of those personal artifacts Mm. and as you say it's the documentation of everybody's life from the poorest to the richest Mm. and yeah seeing someone's little like purse or their spoon or like something that would they would have just had in their pocket but seeing that displayed in a really thoughtful way really brings it alive I think yeah yeah it does I think people when they visit the museum they're absolutely blown away by the story that we're able to tell because of how you can look into the ship and because of all the artifacts that we have telling all those different things of you know what they what they ate you know the games they played the weapons they used it's just everything and you just get totally immersed in it yeah it's not just the ship and the cannonballs and the cannons which in themselves is awesome but it's all the little trinkets that really bring it alive yeah I think people have the kind of perception that they're going to go and see an old ship whereas really which they are (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna lie yes spoiler it's not real no it is (laughs) Um, which they are but it's so much more than that it's an experience isn't it you're you're just immersed in it and it kind of takes you 500 years back and I just think it's really powerful and that everyone should come and visit definitely <laughs> one of the things that blew my mind as we've just been sitting here looking at the old ship is that this wood from the ship is what from the 1600s 1500s yeah like <laughs> this is gonna sound so stupid those trees were probably like at least 100 years yeah. old <clears throat> yeah so all the all the wood as well is um from the new forest so it's all local so the mary rose was built here mm-hmm. and then has kind of ended up here as well so she's 
home. So speaking of going to visit, how can people come and visit? Where are we? <laughs> so the Mayrose Museum is in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, which is very close to Portsmouth Harbour Station. It which, is. I can attest to that. <laughs> which is only an hour and a half from Waterloo. So it's very, very easy. Confirmed. Um, our website is maryrose.org. So that's nice and easy to remember. Often we will have discounts if you book online before. Ooh, so that's my, that's my top tip for you. Um, and we have various, the website and also our Twitter as well, at Mary Rose Museum. There's lots of events and things that go on. So, uh, and like I say, we've just had this temporary exhibition open. So now is definitely the time to come visit. Definitely. So if people want to keep up to date with your research and what you're up to, where can they follow you online? So I'm on Twitter as well. So it's at E underscore Schofield. I think. <laughs> I'm fairly sure it's that. Yeah, so I, I try to post quite a lot about what we're doing. In fact, I posted recently about a move of a very large timber, the stem post, which is the kind of forward-most part of the bow structure um, that was raised in 2005, and we recently got it into the museum, which involved getting a 10-metre-long timber through a six-metre-wide hatch. Oh, wow. It, that day aged me significantly. <laughs> but we took lots of videos and stuff, and I've got a... Um, like a Twitter moment on my time like that. So I try to post things like that because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to kind of look after this collection and the kind of industrial conservation that we do. I think people generally, the feedback I get is that they, they like to see that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Real Talk. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for visiting. So that was the wonderful Eleanor Schofield. Thanks so much to her for giving me the guided private tour of the museum and, of course, for coming on the podcast. There's more about this and all of our other episodes on the Real Talk website. We're at www.realtalk.com. And as always, you can let us know what you thought of the podcast on Twitter. We're at Real Talk. R-I-A-L Talk. That's all for this time. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. So see you next time on Real Talk. 